Thanks, Matt. Good morning, Life Church. Um, I know that pastors aren't really supposed to play favorites with their church members, but just so that we are clear, the folks who show up for the 915 service on Spring Forward Sunday are my favorite church members. So congratulations. Um, I'm joking, of course, if we don't know one another, my name is James Sharp. I'm one of the pastors, one of the elders here, and I'm glad that you're with us. As Matt said, we're going to be in the Old Testament book of Joshua today. Um, so I'd love it if you would turn to Joshua chapter 11, whether that's in a paper Bible or on a Bible app. Um, I'd really love it if you would get that in front of your face. Uh, I'll explain why in just a minute, actually. Um, second thing I should say, uh, th- this won't make any sense to you at all if you're our guest this morning, but if you were here last week, I really set Matt Perez up today, didn't I? Right, I, I sort of ensured that he would absolutely be wearing short sleeves this morning and that there would be no way he could put on more layers than that. And then lo and behold, it was 19 degrees when we came into the building today. And here's Matt in a short sleeve shirt, just like always. Don't you love that guy? Like so predictable and comforting, right? Anyway, um, I'm going to wear out your Bible this morning. Uh, and what I mean is I'm going to ask you to turn to a few different passages. We've been studying the book of Joshua for several months. We're continuing in that today, but as we study Joshua today, I'm going to need to send you to a couple of additional passages, and I want to encourage you when we do that, as we gather in this space, to, to find a way to actually have the word in front of your face. Now, I bring a paper Bible when I come to church, whether I'm preaching or not. I like the fact that it doesn't like distract me, right? Like the face page, the metaverse, they never try to speak to me through my paper Bible. And so I'm encouraged by that, like I can focus. But whether you're using a Bible app or a paper Bible, I think it's just really critical that you have the word in front of your face. That's why, though we have this, you know, fancy thing behind me here, like we will never put like the primary teaching text on the screen on Sunday morning because we want to encourage you I'm going to do everything in our power, actually, to get you to open your Bible while you're here. And there's method to that madness. Um, Several years ago, there was a ministry called Back to the Bible. If you're familiar with the name Warren Wearsby, that's the teaching ministry of Warren Wearsby. If you're not familiar with that name, that doesn't matter at all. But anyway, years ago, Back to the Bible, they did um, a pretty comprehensive survey um, trying to gauge the Bible reading habits of American Christian adults Um, And they came away from that survey with some pretty interesting conclusions. Some things didn't surprise people at all, but there was one really surprising piece of data from that survey, at least in my mind. Um, And that surprising piece of data, it pertained to like the correlation between how we engage in God's word when we're in this room together and how people read God's word outside of this room. And so there would be no surprise at all if the survey had said, as it did, that you know, people who read the Bible on Sunday morning in their church gathering are more likely to read the Bible at home outside of their church gathering away from Sunday morning. But the opposite side of that was really surprising to me. Right? The survey revealed the fact that if you, as an American Christian adult, are not expected to open your Bible in your church building on Sunday morning, then there is actually a 0% chance that you will open your Bible at home away from Sunday morning. Zero percent, not a low chance. There is no chance that you'll open your Bible away from your church gathering on Sunday morning. And so that's why we've concluded it's just really important for us to like encourage you to open a Bible while you're here. 
Now, the survey's a little bit dated. I think the way that we use the Bible app um, like has really kind of changed that. And so I'm sure there are people who are in this room right now who, you know, they, they read the Bible app and then they go home and they read their Bible app. Or they read the Bible app while they're here and they go home and they read a physical Bible. Either of those are fine, of course. But again, all of this explains why, though we could, we just won't ever put like our primary teaching passage on the screen behind me because we just really think it's critical to like encourage all of us to like have our Bibles open in front of us. And I'll encourage like the physical Bible too, man. Again, like Facebook doesn't try to talk to you through your physical Bible. Like it allows you to like still your mind and your heart in a way that holding the device that's connected to like every piece of information that exists doesn't. And so I would just like encourage you to be somebody who carries a physical Bible into this place. Like get yourself one of those like big, heavy study Bibles, right? Like come walking into this room like stooped over under the weight of that Bible. May the orthopedic and chiropractic practices of Salisbury thrive because the people of Life Church are like bent over from carrying their Bibles in and out of their church building on Sunday morning. I genuinely pray that, sort of. <laughs> but the, Psalm 1 tells us that the man whose life delights in the law of God, he's like a tree planted by streams of water. His roots are deep in God's word. His delight in God's word leads to production and, and flourishing and fruitfulness in his life. And so when the storms of life blow through, right, like he is solid and secure because of his rootedness in God's word. And his life bears fruit for the good of others and for the glory of Jesus because of his rootedness in God's word. And so I pray that that's us, right? I pray that we are a people who are indeed rooted in God's word. And I think you bringing your Bible into this place helps us with that. May we be people who are devoted to Scripture together. Let's be devoted to Scripture together in Joshua today. Um, so the book of Joshua, really, it unfolds in two big pieces or two major sections. And the seam between those two sections um, is the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. Right? So chapter 11 ends the first half of the book. Chapter 12 begins the second half of the book. Um, today, in theory, we're talking about chapters 11 and 12, so we're bridging that seam. But the truth is I'm not really going to read anything from or mention anything in chapter 12 because chapter 12 is really like an appendix. And I don't mean the organ in your body. I mean like that thing that comes at the back of a book that like contains a bunch of information that the author thought was important but that he didn't want to put in the main part of the book. So chapter 12 is a list of all of the kings of foreign countries, of pagan countries that were uh, conquered by Moses and by Joshua. And so you can read through that if you'd like on your own later. I'd actually encourage you to do that um, just to, to kind of be reminded of how faithful God is in giving his people over his, giving his people victory over his enemies. But that's really what's going on in chapter 12. It's just a, a long list of the kings who have been conquered um, in the course of, you know, Israel's history. But today we're going to focus on chapter 11, the end of the first half of the book. And that's because chapter 11 gives me like one final opportunity to address one of the really key issues that the book of Joshua presents to us. There are a couple of really big picture questions that just kind of linger in the background of the book of Joshua. And chapter 11 is actually the final chance I have 
to answer one of those questions. And so that's what we're going to focus on today. Let's jump in, beginning in Joshua 11, starting in verse 1. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, now this, there in verse 1, refers to Joshua and the Israelites' victory over all of the kings who lived in the southern part of the promised land. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and in Naphoth-dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mitzpah. Now, that's a mouthful. Um, The beginning of this sounds very much like the beginning of Joshua chapter 10, if you were with us last week. The beginning of Joshua chapter 10, all of the kings in the southern part of the promised land, they see that Israel's there, they see that Israel is a threat, and so they kind of band together in a conspiracy or a coalition, that's the right word, to go and fight against Israel. But what we see here, now these are the kings in the northern part of the promised land, that's going to be a much more formidable coalition than Joshua and the Israelites faced in Joshua chapter 10. Let me show you that, verse 4. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merim to fight Israel. A great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And so compared to Israel, right, this army led by these northern kings of Canaan, it is superior numerically and technologically. Right? They have more soldiers than Israel. Israel does not have soldiers that number, outnumber the sands on the seashore, but the northern kings do. And on top of that, the northern kings, they have horses, they have chariots. But as we've seen time and time again in the book of Joshua, Israel has the Lord. Psalm 20 says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. And in the story, as we've seen so many times, the Lord immediately comes to Israel's aid, even as this massive, well-armed Canaanite army prepares to attack. Let's keep reading, verse six. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merim and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel who struck them and chased them as far as Great Sidon and Misrapoth Maim and eastward as far as the valley of Mitzpah. And they struck them until they left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor, and struck its king with the sword, for Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms, and they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. 
and he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings, Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone. That Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. And they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua. And so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Now there are a couple of historical notes that I should make as we think about that particular story. Um, Here's the first one. Uh, My young daughter, who really loves horses, she was aghast this week um, when she read this bit about Joshua and the army of Israel hamstringing the horses of these Canaanite kings. And so I did a little bit of research. Um, In the ancient world, the practice of hamstringing a horse, it didn't injure the horse severely. It didn't affect the horse's livelihood at all. Really, it just uh, prevented the horse from like bearing a significant burden. Essentially, it prevented the horse from being able to pull a chariot anymore. It was a way of ensuring that that horse would never be used in battle again. And so if you were bothered by the Lord commanding Joshua and the Israelites to hamstring the horses of the Canaanites, don't worry, you don't need to send PETA an email, right? Um, the Lord, he, he cares about animals. He, he created animals. Theologically, I'm not sure that dogs are going to wind up in heaven, but he loves dogs. He hates cats, so I can guarantee that cats will not be in heaven. But um, yeah, cats are only a, a result of the fall, I'm, I'm sure. But <laughs> anyway, sorry. Don't send anybody an angry email over this horse thing. I had to explain that to my daughter, so I'll explain it to you. Um, secondly, archaeologists have... Um, They are very certain about the location of the city of Hazor. And in the 14th century BC, there is archaeological evidence of the fact that the city of Hazor was burned to the ground, just as Joshua chapter 11 mentions here. Now, there are times when archaeological evidence, um, it doesn't actually seem to line up very well with the biblical story. Now, I believe that what the Bible says is true regardless of what archaeology says. Like every scientific discipline, archaeology, it involves accumulating data and interpreting data and then forming conclusions from that data. And of course, in that whole process, like the data could be bad, the interpretation could be bad, the conclusion could be bad. And so I don't ever believe that an archaeological finding is like an absolutely certain, verifiable truth the way that I believe that the word of God is an absolutely certain foundational verifiable truth, right? It is only God's word that is without error, never any archaeological conclusion. But this is one of those situations where, you know, the Bible and archaeology do seem to line up. And I offer that this morning in case that's an encouragement to you. But the third issue here is the main issue that I feel like I need to address before we move into the second half of the book of Joshua. It's it's the biggest issue in the book. Why does God insist that his people wipe out all of these Canaanites? Why does he do that? Wouldn't it have been sufficient 
for the Israelites to defeat all of these Canaanite armies and just, you know, leave it at that. Or maybe just kill the Canaanite kings who have been conspiring against Israel this whole time. But, but let the people live. Right? Why does the book of Joshua repeatedly emphasize that Israel is to kill everyone in the cities that they conquer? Every man, every woman, every child. I mean, isn't that unnecessarily vicious? Or think about it this way. People in our culture the last few weeks have been rightly indignant over the Russian invasion into Ukraine. Right? We were able to see like, photos and, and videos and, and hear news stories from on the ground as those things are happening. And like, culturally speaking, we've been up in arms over the injustice and the violence and the brutality. Like I was working on this on Wednesday, and as I was writing this, like new footage showed up online of the devastation of a children's and maternity hospital in Mariupol. And like as I just thought about that, it, that's awful, right? That's, that's a horrible thing to think about the intentional bombing of a children's and maternity hospital. But how is what Israel does here any better? Right? How is what God commanded of his people different than the Russian invasion of Ukraine? What could possibly justify the intentional killing of women and children in modern times or in ancient times? Like as Christians, we can't just stick our head in the sand when we think about stories like those that are presented to us in the book of Joshua. We need for ourselves and for others like good answers to the question of why God commands such things. Now, in recent weeks, we've, we've danced around this question a little bit. Like we pointed out the fact that if God is loving, then God must also be just. Right? We've said that if he genuinely loves anyone, then he has to be willing to punish those who commit evil. We've also talked about the fact that God can really only be considered good if he is willing and able to make all things right, to undo every injustice and to, to punish all evil, making whole the broken things of this world. And those statements are true and, and they're necessary. Like I think they are a part of our understanding of why God commands the eradication of the Canaanites. But those answers don't tell the whole story. Today I want to try to tell the whole story. There's a Hebrew word that occurs um, about 20 times in the book of Joshua. The verb form of this word is haram. The noun form of this word is harem. It's one of those Hebrew words that starts in the back of your throat, and like if you don't spit while you're saying it, you're not saying it quite right. And so if you want to practice, I give you permission to spit on the person in front of you today. Um, harem, right? That's the word. Harem. It's kind of awkward. But... It's a word that doesn't have a direct translation into English. Um, in other words, there's no one English word that is equivalent to this Hebrew word. My Bible translation consistently through the book of Joshua translates harem as to devote to destruction. Right? That phrase is this one word. We've seen it a lot in this book. We've seen it today. We saw it in verse 11. Right? You can look back. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, the city of Hazor, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. Again, in verse 12, Joshua captured them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction. 
We see it actually a couple more times in verses 16 through 23. Verses 16 through 23, that's the end of the first half of the book of Joshua. It's essentially this summarization of the first half of the book of Joshua. And again, in verse 21, the narrator's telling us about Joshua defeating the Anakim. And the narrator says, uh, where is it? Verse 21, Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Dever, from Anav, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. Again, like just this word, it comes up again and again and again, more than 20 times in the entire book of Joshua. We've just seen this throughout the book of Joshua, right? The people of Jericho devoted to destruction. The people of Ai, devoted to destruction. Everyone in city after city, devoted to destruction. Why? Well, here's where I will wear out your Bible for a minute. Because I need to show you where this idea of the harem comes from and and why it really matters. See, that word harem, it means more than just devoted to destruction. It also carries a connotation of consecration. It's kind of a mouthful, isn't it? A connotation of consecration. That means that it has something to do with God's holiness, with being set apart and, and even destroyed because God in his holiness cannot tolerate what is evil. Let me show you what I mean. Flip backward in your Bible, or again, if you're on the app, find your table of contents and find Exodus chapter 34 for a minute. I want to show you what God tells his people about how they are to relate to the inhabitants of the promised land when they enter the promised land. And let's pay a special attention to why they are relate to those people that way. So this is Exodus 34. I'm going to start in verse 11. God is talking to Moses, and he's giving Moses the instructions that Moses is to pass on to the people of Israel. He says, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other god for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of this sacrifice. And you take their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You see, God understood that the inhabitants of the promised land would be like a spiritual cancer to his people. And so he said, when you enter the land, you need to kill everybody because if you don't, their false worship, their idolatry, their wickedness, it will will settle into every cell in your body. If your sons marry their daughters, when their daughters chase after idols, they're going to lead your sons to chase after idols too. When your daughters marry their sons, when their sons chase after idols, they're going to lead your daughters to chase after those idols too. You see, what is at stake is really the spiritual purity of the people of God. 
right? It's the holiness of Israel that is at stake in this conversation. God is holy, and he calls Israel to be holy as well. And he commands his people to execute the harem to preserve their holiness, to preserve their spiritual purity. Let me just show you that again. Flip over a couple pages now to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy chapter 20. This is a really important passage in this conversation because it shows us kind of the exception to this command. So in Deuteronomy 20, starting in verse 10, God, he's unfolding in further and greater detail how his people are to interact with the inhabitants of the promised land. And starting in verse 10, he tells his people that when there are other nations that live far away from you, you don't have to attack them. He says, if they live off in the distance, you can, you can let them be. If they're willing to make a treaty with you, you can make a treaty with them because they don't live near you. They're not likely to infect you. If they attack you, if they live far away and they attack you, you need to defeat them and then you need to kill all their men. But you can leave the women alive and you can leave the children alive. Again, because it's not a spiritual threat to the purity of Israel, these nations that live far away. However... If there are nations that live near you and among you, you must treat them differently. Look at Deuteronomy 20, verse 16. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to destruction. There's the word again, cherem. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord, your God. Devote them to destruction so that they don't teach you their abominable practices. Devote them to destruction so that they don't corrupt you. Devote them to destruction so that they don't tempt you and persuade you to follow them and their gods. Devote them to destruction. There's one more passage on this. This is backwards, just a few pages. Deuteronomy chapter 7. It starts just like the other passages we've read. Deuteronomy 7.1 says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. But now skip down to verse 6. God adds, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them, by haramming them, 
He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. God says you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Right there, that is the moral and the theological calculus behind the karem, right? God is holy. Therefore, God's people must also be holy. Therefore, God's people must destroy the Canaanites before the Canaanites corrupt the Israelites and drag them into the kind of evil and unholy behavior that God hates. Let me just say all that again because that's the takeaway here, right? God is holy. Therefore, God's people must be holy. Therefore, God's people must destroy the Canaanites before the Canaanites drag Israel into unholy behavior. And by the way, the Canaanites absolutely practiced unholy behavior. Right? They sacrificed their children. They were sexually immoral. They abused the poor. They were brutal and cruel to foreigners and outsiders. Right? The harem, it simply meant that God was punishing sinful, unholy people for generations of wickedness in addition to protecting the spiritual purity of his people. I know this all sounds really brutal to us. I know that it seems vicious and potentially unnecessary to modern ears like ours. But in the end, if we do struggle with this idea of harem, then what that means is that we've not fully wrapped our minds and our hearts around the holiness of God. But if this seems unnecessary or inappropriate or over the top to us. We just haven't really processed how absolutely and completely holy God is. The word holy, it appears in your Bible more than 700 times. The verb form of it, to consecrate, appears an additional 200 times. And no word is used to describe the person or nature of God more than the word holy. But what does it mean that God is holy? Well, it means that he's limitless, that he's infinite in his absolute moral perfection. Right? He's limitless and infinite in his absolute moral purity. He is infinite and limitless in his absolute separation from all that is sinful and wicked and evil. And consider it this way for a moment, if you will. Like from right here, to the edge of the known universe is a distance of something like 13 billion light years. 13 billion light years from right here to the edge of the known universe. To put that another way, that's a distance of 78 billion trillion miles. 78 billion trillion miles. That's 78 with 28 zeros at the end of it. 78 billion trillion miles. That's a massive distance, right? A distance that we can't comprehend. We can't wrap our brains around just how massive that distance is. But it's not an infinite distance. Infinite means it's so vast that you can't measure it. Infinite means that it has no limit. And friends, God is infinite in his holiness. That means it's impossible to measure 
his moral perfection. There is no measure of his purity and there is no measure of the way in which he is separated from everything that is sinful. Hebrew teachers in the time of Jesus, if they really wanted to like emphasize an idea, they would repeat a word for emphasis, right? They would, they would repeat a word twice in succession to convey how significant that idea is. You see Jesus himself do this when he says things like, truly, truly, I tell you. Right? This is Jesus' way of drawing your attention to what he's about to say by emphasizing, repeating that word, truly, truly. Well, in the entire Bible, there's only one word that's repeated not twice, but three times. And that's the idea of God's holiness. Right? Only once is an attribute of God mentioned three times in succession. Right? It's the fiery angels who surround God's eternal throne that declare day and night, night and day, that God is holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory, they declare. Because it's not sufficient to describe God as holy. It's not sufficient to describe God even as holy, holy. Only that threefold repetition of the word conveys how absolutely and without measure God is pure in his holiness. The Bible never says that God is love, love, love. The Bible never says that God is just, just, just. The Bible never says that God is mercy, mercy, mercy. But it says that he is holy, holy, holy. So intense, so transcendent, so without limit is his holiness. That this is the only way that God's moral perfection can be conveyed. And because God is holy, 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 he must separate himself from sin. And he must separate himself from sinners. See, sin, it's a contradiction of God's infinite, limitless moral purity. Right? His opposition to sin, then, is rightly limitless. And it's only when we understand his limitless, transcendent holiness that we're able to understand the, the gravity and the horror of sin. The gravity and the horror of our sin. You see, because that's the seriousness of an offense. It's determined by the greatness of the one against whom that offense is committed. Right? The seriousness of an offense, it's determined by the greatness of the one against whom that offense is is committed. This is how one 19th century theologian put that. He wrote, the guilt of the offense is proportional to the greatness, the moral excellence, and the glory of him against whom the offense is committed, and who made us for loyal obedience to himself. Nothing else, therefore, comes into consideration in estimating the enormity of sin, but the infinite majesty, glory, and claims of him against whom we sin. Maybe this illustration helps. Suppose you want to cover the wood floor in your living room with a rug. Let's say you're on a budget. And so you do what I do when I'm on a budget and I need something for my house. I go to Ikea. Let's say you pay $150 for a rug that has some Swedish name that you can't pronounce. 
and you put that $150 rug on your floor. Mission accomplished. Then suppose I come over to your house and I spill permanent black ink on your $150 Ikea rug. Like I ruin it. And because your rug's ruined, you're out the $150. On the other hand, suppose you're not on a budget. Suppose you're filthy rich. And instead of buying a $150 rug from Ikea, you buy some hand-woven silk Persian rug that you have to import from some exotic country. This rug, it's massive, it's heavy, and it costs you like $15,000 just to ship it here. Right? The rug itself, it's a work of art, and it's one of a kind, therefore it's, it's priceless. And if it had a price tag, it would be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now, if I spill permanent black ink on that rug, it's an entirely different matter. Why? I've done the same thing both times, right? I spilled the same ink, but one offense is far costlier than the other because of the value of the rug. That's how we should view our sin. Right? It's one thing to do something wicked, something horrible to a good person. It's another thing entirely to sin against the absolutely, infinitely holy God of the universe. To transgress an infinitely holy God, to defile the infinite moral purity of a God who is holy, holy, holy. And by the way, we don't like accidentally spill ink, right? Our lives are stained by that ink. We pour out our sin. It flows from us in our pride, our anger, our impatience, our judgmental attitudes, our unkind words, our self-righteousness and our arrogance, right? These things, they just flow from us and the guilt of these offenses. It's not measured by what we do. It's measured by the greatness, the moral excellence, the glory of him against whom those offenses is committed. And that's why, no matter how small, our sin is always an abomination to God. That's why God must separate himself from sin. And why God's people must separate themselves from sin. Even if it means devoting to destruction whole cities and whole peoples. Now those are some heavy things to consider, I know. So as I begin to to wrap up, let me just try to lay before us three ways that we might respond to these things. First, In light of what we've seen here, in light of what we've considered together in God's word today, may we take our sin more seriously. God takes sin seriously. So seriously that he commanded the harem in the first place. He was so eager for his people to remain holy that he eliminated threats to their moral purity. And so I ask you this morning, are you as serious about your sin as God is? Or do you tolerate it, even coddle it? Most of us are content to be basically decent people, so long as we don't embezzle from work or cheat on our taxes or steal candy from young children, we feel like we're in good shape. Not perfect, 
we're good enough. And we're operating on the wrong standard. God tells us, be holy as I am holy. Right? Jesus taught that if your hand causes you to sin, cut that hand off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge out that eye. And so I do ask you today, does your attitude toward your own sin reflect God's attitude toward your sin? Do you despise your sin or do you excuse it? Do you condemn your sin or do you condone it? In light of the holiness of God, may we take our sin more seriously. In light of the holiness of God, may we take our Savior more seriously. These ideas mean that Jesus, he's not the icing on the cake of your otherwise decent life. These ideas mean that Jesus does not come to put the finishing touches on your basic awesomeness. These ideas mean that Jesus came to give dead sinners like you and like me life. He didn't come to put the finishing touches on your moral or spiritual resume. No, he died offering you his perfect righteousness and accepting the judgment that your sin deserved because your moral and spiritual resume was worthless. My moral and spiritual resume was worthless. Our whole lives are a permanent black ink stain on the infinite moral purity of God. And because of that, we deserve the fate of the Perizzites and the Hittites and the Amorites. We deserve to be devoted to destruction. Yet Jesus offers us life. He paid the penalty for our sin in full. He endured the wrath of our God who is holy, holy, holy so that we would not have to. Considering that, how can Jesus be just part of your life? Considering that, how can Jesus be just something but not everything to you in your life? How can your relationship with Jesus be something that you pursue half-heartedly? How can your devotion to Jesus be weak or anemic? May we take our Savior more seriously. And then lastly, may we take one another more seriously. A local church is a gift from God that is intended by God to help you Take your sin and your Savior more seriously. That doesn't just happen through singing songs and praying prayers together and hearing the word preached on Sundays. That happens when we invest ourselves in the life of our local church, when we give ourselves to one another. In other words, the imprint of God's holiness will mark you more fully if you know and are known by brothers and sisters in Christ here. If brothers and sisters in Christ know you well enough to sense when you are drifting, if brothers and sisters in Christ can help you see in yourself the areas where you still need to grow, if brothers and sisters in Christ can offer correction, encouragement, rebuke, and admonition that helps us to live holy lives and to take our Savior seriously. We must take one another seriously so that we can take Jesus seriously, and so that we can take our sin more seriously. So I do pray you'd ask yourself today, 
What's one step that you can take? Just one step toward a deeper and fuller engagement in the life of the local church. I mean, let us help you. Let us help you plug into a life group. Let us help you connect with a ministry team where you can serve. Let us tell you why membership in the covenant community that is the local church matters. Because all of this is essential to our walk with the Lord. So may we take one another more seriously as a way of honoring and treasuring our limitless and majestic and infinitely holy God. Pray with me, church. God, we pray that we would recognize the gravity of our sin, the way in which our sin has poured out vile black ink on your absolute and limitless moral perfection. May we recognize just how desperately we needed your son and how graciously and completely you've saved him, saved us through him. And may we be people who grab hold of what it means to be a part of a church family, to, to live with and to walk alongside people who can help us to see our sin for what it is and who can help us to see our Savior for who he is. Right, may your holiness mark us in those ways, God. We pray that together. In the name of your Son, Jesus.